And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. I was almost ready to sit down and do a podcast filled with probably 20 Q&As. I'm, I'm so behind on answering your questions in podcasts. I, I really apologize. And But I was up early and I, I saw this new article in Financial Planning. The title is, This Piece of Evidence Could Derail the Growth Versus Value Debate. And uh, I thought to myself, wait a minute, this is something that my readers and listeners are going to find of interest. And uh, while I didn't really find anything to to uh, give me any new evidence in terms of the growth versus value decision, what I did find is some information that I think is so valuable in helping investors not only understand how investing works, but to help them create realistic expectations. And to the extent that something stands in the way of meeting our expectations, it's important to understand what those variables or headwinds might be. We all easily can agree that expenses are a headwind, that taxes are a headwind, that trying to get growth out of bonds, there's a headwind due to that guarantee that bonds theoretically represent. But what about the growth versus value? Well, let me take you through this. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I will read parts of uh, this particular piece. I think it is important to make it uh, clear who wrote this piece. Uh, You know, I often talk about Wall Street and Main Street and University Street mean the academics and and whenever I'm asked how, what information do I trust, uh, it is, in almost every case, it's the academics. And in this particular case, the, uh, uh, the academic, Dr. Craig Israelson, uh, he's an ex- executive in residence in the financial planning program at Utah Valley University in Orem, Utah. He holds a Ph.D. in Family Resource Management from Brigham Young uh, and uh, lots of educational background. uh, But primary among his research interests is the analysis of mutual funds and the design of investment portfolios. And then they go on. You might want to take the time to look up the information. In fact, I'll I'll put a link uh, to this information uh, along with the podcast information. Uh, Here is something of of what I think will be of interest to some of you. He is uh, the developer of the 712 portfolio and the author of three books. The last one is 712, A Diversified Investment Portfolio with a Plan. And uh, I've said many times that there are hundreds, even thousands of ways you could build a portfolio, but only a handful of folks that that I would uh, take seriously, uh, that it's based on 
all the good academic research we have, and Dr. Israelson's work certainly fits uh, in that category of uh, uh, acceptable. He's one of many, I think, who have a smart way to put together a portfolio. So what does he have to say? What's this all about? He opens his article with the arguments over investing for growth versus value can sometime remind advisors of a water cooler quarrel. Proponents of each approach come armed with their own compelling data and analysis. But like many spats, a simple, surprising piece of evidence can quickly derail the argument. And so his is a uh, presentation I think you'll actually find quite interesting. Uh, I, I must admit that I had not tracked the performance of uh, value versus growth uh, the way that uh, Dr. Israelson has. Um, he says, it is the fact that the performance of both of both growth-oriented U.S. equity indexes and value indexes are strikingly different depending on which index provider you choose to use. Now, I hadn't thought about this uh, as I studied the growth and value argument uh, all these years. And, and in fact, uh, it turns out there's a huge difference in, uh, in the end results, depending upon the indexes that you use. By the way, this is really one of many things that would distort uh, the outcome, because in this particular case, uh, he's looking at a 19-year period from 1998 to 2016, and um, uh, if you took another period of time, uh, you might find that there is a very different outcome than this particular period. I mean, for what it's worth, uh, during that same period of time, uh, bonds outproduced many, if not most, big stocks in, in, uh, that, that are tracked. And, and there's a 30-year period I, I know from uh, from I think 1970 through uh, 1999, with an end result of small cap underperforming large cap just by a little bit. But remember, the people who were in small cap took a much bigger risk than the people in large cap. So, very long period of time to expect to get a premium that in fact. You did not. So this 19-year period doesn't represent the total answer, but it is very significant, the difference between these different ways of measuring the uh, these indexes. And in this particular study, there is a comparison of U.S. large, mid-cap, and small-cap for both growth and value. And they follow, uh, he tracks the returns based on what Morningstar identifies as growth and value, what Russell identifies uh, and, and, and puts together their particular indexes, and the S&P, they have a growth and a value index. 
Now, they also show the average return of uh, the actively managed mutual funds uh, that are part of this category. And, uh, and, and those numbers in particular uh, may be suspect. I'll go into why that is so. But uh, I will, in talking about uh, the results that he came up with, I will add one more set of numbers, and that uh, those are the numbers from dimensional funds as they see the way to build a, a large and small cap uh, growth and value indices. But let's look at the market difference in return between growth and value uh, amongst Morningstar, Russell, S&P 500, and the average large-cap fund. According to Morningstar, for that 1998 to 2016 period, large growth compounded at 3.88% versus large value of 6.11%. Now, how, how different could Russell be? Well, Russell shows the growth compounded at almost 2% more, 5.76, and about 1% more compared to Morningstar of 7.07. And the S&P 500 growth index over that period was 6.37%. Uh, versus 6.3 uh, for the value. I, I guess the point here is there is a huge spread for growth from 3.88 to 6.37. Now, for value, the spread is narrower from 6.11 to uh, 7.07. But what's interesting is the uh, large cap mutual fund category average was for growth 6.77 and for value 6.91. I mean, that's very interesting how close the average mutual fund actively managed did, whether it was growth or value. I mean, think about that. Morningstar found that the index they track, that they've built, compounded at 3.88, but the average mutual fund compounded at 6.77. In fact, here's the case for active management. Yes, without question. Well, except for one question, and that is, uh, is there anything about the numbers we're getting from the average that possibly uh, could, in fact, uh, mislead an investor? Well, that takes me to another study that I refer to often, but i got to go back to it today because this makes the point so vividly that when we look at the SPIVA Report S P I V A. They have a scorecard comes out every six months, and we look at not just how many mutual funds actively managed did better than their benchmark, but they also look at 
survivorship, and style consistency. And what we find in terms of uh, survivorship is that if you look at all large cap funds for a 15-year period, now that's not exactly the same as the 19-year period uh, in this study I'm referring to, but for 15 years, at the end of 15 years, large cap funds, 34% survived. In other words, the rest of those funds were merged or liquidated. And why are they merged or liquidated? Because it would, in fact, uh, get those bad returns off the books and uh, move those bad returns either into another fund where they disappear forever or just liquidate the fund in total. So, as I'm saying, the difference between uh, kind of who you're following is, uh, is, is going to impact the, the likely return. Now, as we go to small cap, and, and for the purpose of discussion, because I've got numbers for DFA as well, I want to talk about the, the large cap and the small cap growth and value. But I could say one thing before we move off of large cap, that the growth index as DFA builds it, compounded at 7.4 for that 1998 through 2016 period. And for the value, large cap value, remember the, the highest return was the Russell index at 7.07, but the DFA index compounded at 8.2. Now, keep in mind, these returns do not include expenses, regardless of which index you may be in. So, it looks like, regardless of, of which of these uh, asset classes that uh, growth or value that, or, or index that you chose, value one in almost every situation. Now, when we go to small cap, uh, again, uh, there is a really big difference between the Morningstar uh, U.S. small index for growth versus value. Now, uh, let's keep in mind that uh, let's remember that their growth index, large cap, was 388 but their growth index for small cap was 5.58. So according to what we would learn from Morningstar, uh, growth is not that big of producer, but value, I'm sorry, small outproduce large significantly. When we go to the Russell 2000, Remember, we're looking at Morningstar, Russell, and the S&P, and then the average. But the Russell 2000 growth was 5.97. Not too much difference between the Morningstar and the Russell. But the Morningstar value was 10.06, over 4% more 
for value over growth with small companies. And the Russell 2000 was 8.66. Not as big a difference as with the Morningstar, but still a significant premium. But wait a minute. Morningstar reports 5.58 for small cap growth. Russell 5.97. The S&P small cap index for growth 9.23. And value 9.39. So the S&P would say, hey, there's really hardly any difference between the small cap growth and small cap value. And the average small cap fund, and remember, we're again, we're fighting that uh, survivorship bias. But for the small cap growth, 8.8, and for small cap value, 9.59. Now, I need to look again at that table I referenced before for large cap. Let's look at, at the survivorship uh, of small cap and small cap growth had a survivorship of uh, almost 42% and small cap value. Now, this is interesting. I'd like to know why. I'm going to guess. But small cap value, 60% of the funds survived. Now, let me tell you why I think that's so. Uh, We know that value produced a higher rate of return than growth according to most of these index providers. So you could see why the growth funds that didn't cut it, uh, that uh, they could be uh, they could be whacked, they could be closed, they could be merged away. But value produced a very good long-term return compared to growth, and so those funds are probably less likely to be merged or uh, or liquidated because value, whether you look at 19 years or you look at 90 years, uh, produce a higher rate of return than growth. And I think that showed in those survivorship numbers. Now, let's look uh, at the, uh, the small cap value average mutual fund performer, 9.59% growth 8.8. Now, uh, remember, with survivorship, you end up with the cream of the crop, theoretically. Now, some of those that survived uh, that, that, that particular period, long period of time, will be some of the underachievers of the future, while the benchmarks will go ahead and probably outperform them. At least that's what we know of the past. And what about DFA? Now, let's remember the range of growth returns were from 5.58 to 9.23, and DFA was 9.5. The range with small cap value was from 8.66 to 10.06, and DFA was 12.1. Now, please understand, there is absolutely no magic to any of this. First of all, the way you, the way you build 
a, uh, a portfolio is going to end up with an average size and an average price to book. And as we know, historically, as that price to book ratio goes down, the returns go up. So you would find that in some market periods, that one particular index is going to be better than another. What I do know and and what I've been telling people since uh, when I was had an investment advisory firm and I was teaching classes to, uh, in the hopes that people would get this right on their own or hire us as investment managers to help them. But the way that DFA builds a portfolio, offers potentially a better long-term return. Now, time will only tell because, if I can just remind you for a minute, when we looked at the U.S. large-cap indexes, that the return, if you followed Morningstar, was 3.88% for that 19-year period versus 6.37 for the S&P 500 approach to building growth. And in fact, again, I've got to remind you that in the case of the S&P 500 value index, the return was actually higher with growth than it was with value. So is it possible that you're going to end up expecting a big premium from value? For overgrowth and you don't get it? Is it possible you'll end up thinking you're going to get a 10% compound rate of return for U.S. large cap growth? In fact, you might even think that a combination of the, of the value and the growth would hurt the return of the S&P 500. If you ask the uninitiated, should I expect better returns from the great growth companies or the lousy value companies, you're probably not going to find many people who say, oh, I wouldn't want those lousy value companies. No, I want to be where the action is. And of course, we know from lots of evidence that being with the action it can be dangerous territory, um, particularly coming down from uh, uh, overheated markets. Now, before I leave this topic, I do want to go back uh, to this uh, this whole topic about about uh, Spiva and 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 this uh, the the reality of uh, the performance that we see uh, in the industry. Allow me to spend a few more minutes on the SPIVA report in terms of performance versus their benchmark. When I look at the year-by-year performance from 2001 through 2016, I can see that in most of the years that the number of funds in their categories that beat the uh, the index, their benchmark, was from uh, 50 to 65 percent. In fact, in 2011, I see that 82 percent of the large cap funds were able to beat 
their benchmark. So year by year, in fact, here back in 2003, that was true of 75%. But the point is, year by year, it's going to look like the uh, average mutual fund in a particular category uh, was able to to uh, beat the index. But it's when you look at it over a long period of time, which is the view of investing all of us should be taking, except for money we're saving for a down payment or education or something where we should be all in fixed income instruments. But if we're looking for growth, we should be thinking long term. And so the question then is, are the same managers the ones responsible for being in the top half, let's say, or or in the top quarter? And it turns out, at least we have to, to, to con- conclude that, that when you look out over 15 years, that really very few of the active managers are able to do better than the market. Now, there are in some cases, like large cap value, less than 3% were able to beat the benchmark. Small cap uh, core, which is a combination of both value and growth, uh, it was 90, 94% or a little over 5% that, that beat uh, the index. Uh, small cap growth, 99.43% of the actively managed funds underperformed the benchmark. Now, keep in mind the benchmark does have one you know big added advantage there are no expenses in the benchmark but but we all know you can now buy those but you couldn't always do this but today you can get access to these benchmarks for as little as 5 one-hundredths of 1% so that is part of the answer that it's just a matter of time that seems to to uh, uh, find out the, uh, what the active manager's track record is likely to be, and that is less than the index. But there's really more to it than that. I mean, we are, we are struck by survivorship bias and how few funds last the whole period. Now, in the case of the SPIVA report, they do take survivorship in terms of the return, into consideration. So it's a much cleaner view than what you would get at uh, the Morningstar average. But here's the part that's difficult to deal with, and that is style consistency. And one of the reasons I think you're going to find that uh, a lot of uh, funds are, are going to underproduce a particular benchmark or even outproduce a particular benchmark is because their portfolio is made up of a lot of different kinds of asset classes. I even struggle on your behalf to, to find small cap value index ETFs or funds that aren't intermixed with some growth or some mid-cap. 
So you can create an index that we can say is pure, but it doesn't mean that the active manager is uh, responsible for doing the same thing. Now, here's what we know. We know if you look at all domestic funds, according to to um, SPIVA, that's the S&P, Standard & Poor's, that only 39% of the entire universe actually maintained their style, big, small, value, growth, etc., over the entire period. In the case of large cap funds, only 25.8% were able to be consistent in their style. Uh, Again, this is over a 15-year period. If you look at... um, Let's see what even comes in lower. Ah, large cap core, which is a combination of both value and growth. Only 17% were able to maintain that balance of large and value. Large cap value, 26%. And I find this one interesting. Only 22% of small cap value funds maintained their style consistency And I'm not surprised by that, because what happens? You get a good track record, you attract a whole bunch of money, all of a sudden you need to move to possibly to larger size companies or maybe having to accept some growth into the portfolio. Uh, There are any number of reasons why funds don't give us what we expect. And I think that's the bottom line of this whole conversation if you don't have style consistency and if you got to deal with survivorship and you got to deal with uh, different uh, ways to build uh, a particular index and knowing that that could change from period to period. For example, if you have a, a period where large cap growth, let's say, is very strong and, uh, and value is weak, If you put your money into a large cap, mostly growth, but some value, you're going to find out that you're not going to do very well. There's a reason. It isn't about selection that is the reason. It's about how the market rewards. Remember, I can't make you a penny and no other investment advisor can because the market makes you money. I can't make you money. Now, what if I were your advisor, I might keep you from doing something stupid like bailing out at the bottom of a market. By the way, it's only viewed as stupid if the market turned around and went back up. If the market had continued down, it would have been a great move. But, but there are a lot of variables happening in putting together a portfolio. And the reason I am so in favor of index funds is it creates the highest probability of style consistency. And it ain't perfect. I'm telling you right now, even with so-called index funds, uh, it, it, it represents lower expenses. It represents greater diversification. And so the, this is another, just another example where the boring is beautiful approach to investing with index funds is probably going to give you, on a long-term basis, 
the best rates of return. So next week, I hope to be back answering your questions. Oh, wait a minute. Doggone it. Next week, I want to do an update through the end of the first nine months of this year. This has been a crazy year. Things have happened in terms of returns that I think are way outside what people thought was about to happen. And um, I think it's worth talking about. So, uh, no, I may not get to those 20 or 30 questions for a couple of weeks, but uh, I'll get back to you. In the meantime, I hope this information is helpful. And share it with others that you think might be helped as well. Please and thank you. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.